You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll ask if we're moving closer to a deal on Iran's nuclear programme or further away. And we'll hear from Paris about a very dirty battle for the leadership of the French right. But we begin in the United States, where the news that Darren Wilson, a white police officer who shot dead Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager in Ferguson, Missouri this summer, will face no criminal charges, has sparked violent rioting. After the grand jury decided not to indict the police officer, St. Louis County prosecuting attorney Robert McCullough explained the reasons why. The physical and scientific evidence examined by the grand jury, combined with the witness statements supported and substantiated by that physical evidence, tells the accurate and tragic story of what happened. Michael Brown's parents and President Barack Obama called for calm, but police said that protesters in Ferguson fired more than 150 shots during a night of rioting that also saw widespread looting. Demonstrators accused the police, who used tear gas on the crowds, of heavy-handed tactics. I'm joined now from Washington by our correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon, was this decision by the grand jury a surprise? I don't think it was, um, and I don't think the violence that followed the decision was a surprise either. Um, the prosecutor, as he outlined, Bob McCulloch outlined, uh, they had the grand jury of 12 jurors had to weigh up all of the evidence in the case, and they had to go through all of the testimony from eyewitnesses. And the, the McCulloch went into some detail at a press conference last night as to what the evidence was. Um, if you look back at what happened on August 9th, uh, Darren Wilson, the 28-year-old police officer, the white police officer with the Ferguson police, uh, stopped Michael Brown, the 18-year-old uh, unarmed black teenager, uh, as he was walking down the street in Ferguson. And the police officer was responding to a, a theft at a local shop. And as the evidence showed and as the evidence that the grand jury looked at, um, Wilson was shown not to be the aggressor in this case, but the aggressor was Michael Brown. Um, Darren Wilson took the aver- unusual decision of actually testifying um, before the grand jury. He spoke to them uh, in private. Uh, grand jury is, is held, holds its deliberations and hears testimony in secret. And he spent four hours telling them what had happened on August 9th. He said that uh, he pulled over and when he tried to apprehend Michael Brown, Michael Brown ran out of his police cr- cruiser. He banged the door closed and then he tried to reach for Darren Brown's gun, according to the police officer's testimony. Uh, and when he tried to, uh, a scuffle ensued and Wilson managed to fire off a, a couple of shots, which um, moved Brown away. Uh, and this was one of the more surprising aspects to the evidence that uh, we hadn't heard previously was that Brown had charged at um, the officer even after he had fired shots. And ultimately, uh, the police officer had to fire uh, 12 shots in all, including one shot to the head which was fatal and which uh, led to Michael Brown's death. Um, So McCulloch pointed out in the press conference, a very lengthy press conference last night, that all the evidence showed that um, Darren Brown uh, had to use excessive force because he he was convinced that his life was at risk and the grand jury uh, believed him. Why did this case uh, spark such anger among African-Americans, not just in Ferguson, but far beyond it? 
Well, this is an example of what um, many, not just the African-American community, believe is excessive police uh, force against um, in their in their carrying out of their duties. Um, I suppose it was particularly magnified in Ferguson, not just because of the violence of the uh, of the killing of Michael Brown, twelve shots being fired was regarded by many as being far, far too excessive, obviously. And but in Ferguson, it was regarded as being an example of really some of the racial disparities that exist. In, in policing, particularly when it comes to uh, how white police officers handle and treat uh, black young black men and young black suspects in in in, um, in carrying out their duties in Ferguson itself, about two thirds of the town's residents are black, whereas fifty of its fifty three police officers and five of its six city council members are white. So the view was, well, this is a very good example of what you see across the United States, that you see this kind of heavy-handed and perhaps ham-fisted approach to policing. Uh, and that Michael Brown's case was held up as an example of um, really how the policing um, of communities like Ferguson needs to change. Um, Barack Obama himself came out and said, well, he called for calm last night in an address from the White House. But he also said that it really points to some of the wider problems that exist in the U.S., you know, he urged police last night to show care and restraint, and he also urged police to distinguish between the handful of people who may use the grand jury's decision as an excuse for violence, uh, again, uh, and to differentiate them between the vast majority who just want their voices heard around legitimate issues. Obama himself said that Ferguson highlights these challenges in the country. He said that there has been enormous progress in race relations, but there are still problems, and he said communities of color aren't just making these problems up. And he said in too many parts of the country, there's a deep distrust that exists between law enforcement and communities of colour. And the protests last night, not just in Ferguson, which turned very violent, but across the country, showed that people feel, uh, share the sentiments, share the sentiments of the president. And is there any sign uh, or any prospect of these uh, deep-seated problems of the uh, extraordinary imbalance between the uh, the way in which uh, people of colour tend to be treated, at least uh, statistically, than their numbers in terms of arrests, stops, being the victims of police violence, are disproportionately high compared to um, to those of uh, of white Americans. Is there any sign of anything well, being done? They are reassessing how police do their jobs. Um, it was pointed out late last night after the president spoke that Eric Holder, the U.S. Attorney General, said that the Department of Justice is still carrying out its own investigation. This is a civil rights investigation at a federal level to see if Michael Brown's civil rights have been infringed by uh, Darren Wilson's actions on that day, on August 9th. And it is leading to a wider review of just how police do their jobs, whether the police are heavy-handed in their approach to dealing with um, young black men and dealing with members of the African-American community. So it is leading to some much broader soul-searching by law enforcement agents and at a federal level, at a government level, to figure out, well, what can we do that's different? The Brown family themselves have called for cameras to be, uh, that police officers should wear cameras on their person when they're carrying out their duties. And that does seem like a rather simple uh, and very smart way of, of dealing with a lot of the problems that emerged in the Brown case. If, if uh, Darren Wilson had been wearing a camera, we certainly would have seen more clearly uh, what uh, what behaviour of Michael Brown was on that day and, and whether the police were justified in, in, in shooting him dead that day. Uh, you mentioned the unrest in Ferguson last night. Who were the people who were out protesting in Ferguson last night? 
Well, I think it's important to differentiate, like the president has, between the people that were there peacefully protesting and the people that were um, involved in the violence later on in the evening. Uh, Ferguson had become this um, test case, I guess, or this magnified uh, example of of, um, these racial disparities that exist, and people have used uh, Ferguson as an opportunity to put their cases forward. So the town had attracted quite a lot of different various groups over the uh, over recent months, and uh, particularly since um, in, in the run-up to the grand jury announcement uh, last night. So you'd seen a lot of left-wing groups, like communist groups, that have been coming um, and making their voices heard. But you'd also seen the Ku Klux Klan even issuing flyers um, in the Ferguson area warning against the violence uh, against police officers in response to this. Um, and then later on in the, in the evening, uh, the violence uh, kind of moved beyond the protests around what the issue was being, about the issue generally um, and became more about uh, violence uh, leading to looting, uh, just a general um, chaos of the event. And you, so you've seen a lot of local businesses burned out, a lot of local uh, shops being attacked and looted by uh, by the protesters. So it had really descended into some very serious violence. In all, there were about 82 arrests in Ferguson and 21 arrests in St. Louis. The police also said that there were more than 150 shots fired uh, in the evening. Elsewhere, the protests were more peaceful. Um, they were There were protests in New York, um, Philadelphia to Chicago, uh, all the way to Oakland, Los Angeles, and Seattle on the West Coast. But they were, um, for, for the most part, largely a peaceful protest. Simon, we're heading into the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, are the authorities in the United States expecting this unrest to continue, or is Thanksgiving likely to put a break on them? Well, they're certainly watching to see whether this will spiral on. After the killing of Michael Brown on August 9th, there were weeks of civil unrest and uh, multiple clashes between police and demonstrators in in the days and weeks after uh, after a shooting. So I think um, it would be premature to say that this is the end of the matter and this is the end of the violence. Um, certainly uh, a lot of the local law enforcement are saying that they need um, more police reinforcements uh, to make sure that you know, they can uh, maintain peace and order in St. Louis, in St. Louis County, the area in which uh, Ferguson is. So, uh, again, this had been anticipated as well. You had the Missouri Governor Jay Nixon had called in, uh, declared a state of emergency and called in the National Guard. Also, uh, there was a lot of criticism raised as to why exactly uh, law enforcement, uh, the prosecutors decided to release the news so late in the evening, giving protesters it's several hours to assemble and really to present uh, presented real difficulties for the police forces to deal with for the police force to deal with um, the protesters through the course of last night. But, so I think that people are really watching and seeing, and no one is saying that this is over by any means. Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Talks in Vienna over the future of Iran's nuclear program ended this week without a deal, but the talks were extended by a further seven months. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, sounded upbeat about the process, saying that big steps have been taken. But US Secretary of State John Kerry was more downbeat, stressing that some significant points of difference remain between Iran and the six world powers on the other side. The world powers, EU members Germany, France and Britain, along with the United States, China and Russia, want Iran to limit its nuclear programme in return for an easing of economic and political sanctions. Tehran insists that it has no intention of building a nuclear weapon. But the two sides have been arguing about how much uranium Iran should be allowed to enrich, how its commitments can be verified, and how quickly sanctions should be lifted. 
So does this week's extension of the talks make a deal more or less likely? And can a weakened Barack Obama facing a Republican-controlled Congress actually deliver on a deal? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Eli Garan Meyer, Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, who has been following the talks. Eli, is this extension good news or bad news? I think the, the extension itself was largely anticipated by many Iran watchers. But I do think that the length of the extension itself came as a surprise uh, to a few of us who thought really that a extension of perhaps weeks rather than months was on the cards so that we would have a few weeks until a political agreement was reached, and then after that, some time for the detailed technical annexes. However, having said that, I think that there has been a substantive amount of progress made on many issues, which Secretary Kerry himself said were vexing at the beginning of these negotiations. So we've seen progress on a number of technical areas, such as Bordeaux facility, Iraq facility, Natanz to a certain extent. We've seen movement on inspection and verification protocols that Iran would sign up to. And I think negotiators have decided that there is hope for a breakthrough on the outstanding issues, which are namely sanctions relief and enrichment capacity of Iran's nuclear program to allow, allow some more time for these issues to be hashed out. Now, I think that the length of the extension poses a few problems. Um, firstly, we know that um, this issue is being backed quite significantly by leadership in both Iran and in the U.S. So we are going to have an extension up to July now, 2015, after which President Obama will have a very limited time in office to create the confidence-building measures necessary under this deal that a next U.S. president or a majority Republican-run Congress will not undermine. So I think that's one of the risks of the extension. Secondly, I think some people worry that this second extension of the Joint Plan of Action agreed a year ago is a sign that we may reach a stalemate of perpetual joint plans of actions being extended. And that is a worrying sign for some because it removes the pressure for people to make the difficult choices that are necessary to get this deal done. Can we just, sorry, maybe just if we talk about that joint plan of action, that was agreed uh, a year ago in Geneva. and, uh, And essentially what that agrees, under that, Iran is freezing its uh, program uh, in return for receiving access to a certain amount of its own money every month. Yes. And that will continue. Uh, So the the technicalities, first of all, uh, none of the negotiators have um, provided a document about how this extension period will work, but they've said that it will work on the same uh, basis as a joint plan of action. So roughly what this means is that Iran will freeze this nuclear program, as was the case under the second extension of the Joint Plan of Action, and in return it will receive monthly installments of about $700 million. Uh, so in total over the seven months, that amounts to $5 billion. And I should stress that this money is actually coming from Iran's frozen oil revenues, which are in Western bank accounts. So in return for freezing its program, Iran is actually getting access to a limited amount of its own money. But I, but when you say, for example, that uh, you, know, you could have a whole load of continued extensions, presumably that would create a certain amount of stability, even if it's not an ideal arrangement. Um, well, stability, I think it depends how you're speaking, because, yes, stability in terms of 
if it's going to avoid a situation where there is military conflict, uh, military targets in, in Iran, which could escalate quite a hostile situation, yes, stability in that sense uh, will be created by a perpetual uh, extension of the agreement. But I don't think that opposition groups, either in Washington or in Tehran, are going to let that be the case. And if there is new sanctions introduced by the U.S. Congress um, over the course of these negotiations, Iran will respond by, for example, um, upping its sanctions or walking away from the negotiation table. So in that sense, perpetual uh, extensions do not create a stability in the diplomatic track. You mentioned the difficulties that President Obama faces with his Republican-controlled Congress and indeed some opposition from within the Democratic ranks as well. What about President Rouhani? What's uh, his situation? Situation politically? Well, President Rouhani also faces significant opposition back home from his own hardliners. And really, he made a campaign promise to bring back economic relief to the Iranian population. So if now we're talking next July, we'll be about two years into his term in office, in which the, the sanctions relief and the monetary uh, relief that he's handled has under the joint plan of action is actually pretty minimal. So he will be quite under the heat at home to deliver more by way of economic relief. And in the meantime, his hand is going to be restricted on other issues while he focuses all of his political capital on resolving the nuclear issues. So some of the domestic chronic problems that he has, he's going to have to deprioritize while this nuclear issue is being resolved. Finally, Ellie, uh, Israel says that the option of attacking Iran and its nuclear facilities remains on the table. How credible is that threat now? Well, I mean, the U.S. administration, certainly the U.S. Congress and Israel have always claimed that the military option is on the table and they've continued those threats. And of course, if the, if there is going to be an Israeli um, military a targeted attack on Iran's nuclear facilities, it will have to have the blessing of the U.S. administration. Now, I don't really see that happening in this point in time with President Obama, who's basically shown the greatest level of commitment in comparison to any other U.S. president in getting this deal done with Iran. Also, I think there are some divisions within the Israeli system itself, between the security branches and the government's executive branches, as to what this kind of military attack would mean for Israel and whether it is really in Israel's interest to carry that out. So I think that reduces the threat of the military um, option being viable. And, and, and certainly, really, I don't think that the Middle East can, frankly, uh, deal with another turbulent country in the region right now. And that's very much on the minds of European actors, on the U.S. actors, who will need to have, who Israel will necessarily have to have some kind of a blessing from to carry out these attacks. And I don't think this option is palatable to anybody at the moment. And, and in terms of all of that insecurity, to what extent have these uh, talks about the nuclear program gone in tandem with any kind of discussions of, for example, the struggle against the Islamic State in Syria and in Iraq? Well, there's no denying that there's a clear, obvious, overlapping mutual interest in the campaign against Daesh in Iraq for both Iran and the West. Um, certainly, the, both sides have been very clear that in the last few months of negotiations, there's been no linking of the nuclear talks to the regional, to, uh, regional file. Um, but having said that, obviously, we now have such a 
open channel of dialogue between especially the U.S. and Iran, that there will be times, whether it's in the corridors of negotiations, on the sidelines of negotiations, where they will naturally talk about their positions on the regional issues and what's being, uh, what, what their various military campaigns, especially in Iraq against Daesh are. But I do not think, especially from the EU 3 plus 3 side, there's going to be any linkage of the regional issues to the nuclear file going forward, which, by the way, is one of the other reasons why an extension, a long extension and perpetual extension is quite damning for our regional um, outlook because it reduces the chances of clear coordination between Iran and the West on areas of common interest. Ellie Garen Meyer, thank you. And you can read Ellie's analysis of the Iran talks for the European Council on Foreign Relations at ecfr.eu. You're listening to the Irish Times. France's main centre right party, the UMP, will choose a new president this weekend. It's not a contest that would normally attract much attention, but this time is different because former President Nicolas Sarkozy is among the candidates. And he's made little secret of the fact that he's hoping to use the party leadership as a springboard for another bid for the presidency, which he lost to François Hollande two years ago. At a rally last weekend in Bordeaux, Sarkozy stood back and allowed his supporters to boo the city's mayor, former Prime Minister Alain Juppé, who also happens to be Sarkozy's main rival for the centre-right's presidential nomination in 2017. Last time Sarkozy was elected leader of the UMP 10 years ago, he won 85% of the votes. So how will he do this time round? Well, I'm joined from Paris now by our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlow. Lara, is Sarkozy a shoe-in? He is a shoe-in for the UMP leadership because he has only two opponents and they're both uh, younger, less well-known uh, deputies in the National Assembly who really don't have a chance. But actually, Bruno Le Maire, who, who would be the, the second, uh, who would come in second after Sarkozy, uh, has done very well. There was a, a poll, um, a recent poll showed him getting something like 31%. And, and analysts have said that if Le Maire gets over 15 or 20%, he will really be a force to be recognized with in the party, and he, he's presenting himself as the, the rampart against the, the guerre des chefs, the war of the leaders within the UMP, because this is the UMP's greatest weakness, is that they hate each other, they absolutely detest one another between Juppé, François Fillon, who was also a prime minister, and Nicolas Sarkozy, and Bruno Le Maire is saying they're tearing the party apart. If you vote for me, I will make sure that the party is unified. Sarkozy also of course, claims to be unifying the party and to be unifying the right. Uh, the, the, what really matters on Saturday night, the, the, the poll for the party president will close at 8 p.m. There are just over 268,000 card-carrying members of the UMP who can vote. Uh, what matters is the score that Sarkozy gets. And he's very worried because the most recent poll, which was published on Monday, showed him getting uh, only 57% of the vote. As you said, Dennis, the last time he was elected party leader, he got 85%. Uh, What he really wants is a score high enough, sort of 80% or higher, uh, so that he can present himself as the natural, obvious candidate of the UMP for the presidency in 2017, so that he won't have to mess around with with a primary, which he might lose to Alain Juppé. That's what he's aiming for, but it doesn't look like he's going to get it. That said, it's very hard to tell because the pollsters have no way of distinguishing between the 268,000 card-carrying party members whom I mentioned and the uh, sort of, you know, huge 
section of the French electorate, between 20 and 30 percent of the French election, electorate, who say that the UMP is there, that they are UMP supporters. Uh, so the polls measure uh, sentiment among UMP supporters who favor Juppé now over Sarkozy, but the hardcore of party militants are more pro-Sarkozy. So it's very unpredictable, and a lot hangs on what happens on Saturday night. Now, you mentioned uh, Juppé. Uh, tell us about this rally in Bordeaux last weekend. Well, as you mentioned, Juppé is the mayor of Bordeaux, so it's his home turf. Uh, Sarkozy supporters, including Rashida Dati, whom I had lunch with on Monday, say, well, you know, it's, it's uh, Juppé's town. He's responsible for what happened there. And they're sort of saying that the fact that he would be booed by his own, the inhabitants of his own city, you know, is very damning for Juppé. But the fact is that the Sarkozy people bust in a lot of supporters from outside Bordeaux. Uh, nobody's exactly sure of the proportions. Uh, Juppé just said something. What's really got the backs up of the Sarkozy supporters is the idea of the primary. Uh, Juppé wants a very wide-open primary in which the little tiny center-right parties like the Modem and the UDI and so on can all vote because they, they are more moderate and they like Juppé. They, they find Sarkozy too extreme. Uh, that's what really is upsetting the Sarkozy people. That's why they hate Juppé so much. But he talked about the center. You see uh, François um, Bayrou, uh, Bayrou, who is the head of the Modem, vote, the last two presidential elections, he supported the socialist candidates. He supported Ségolène Royal uh, when she was defeated by Sarkozy in 2007, and he supported uh, um, Hollande when he defeated Sarkozy in 2012. So Bayrou is considered a total traitor. When Juppé gets up on the stage last Saturday night and says, I want the largest possible gathering of the right and the center, that's what the UMP should be. Uh, the Sarkozy supporters saw that as, a, as a, an allusion to François Bayrou. And they started booing and hissing and whistling and so on. And Sarkozy, as you said, just stood back with his arms crossed—his um, arms crossed—and and more or less smiled. I mean, I think he was—he was very, very pleased to see Juppé booed in this way. But it went down very, very badly in public opinion. People saw it as a sort of as an ambush of Juppé uh, by Sarkozy. And and Rashida Dati even told me, uh, well, you know, the, one of their arguments against Juppé is that he's too stiff, he's too cold, he's a cold fish and so on. And she said, Juppé stiffened up when they were booing him. I saw it. I saw it. It shows he hasn't changed. Uh, where, whereas, you know, it's not really clear how they expect him to react. But uh, Juppé actually was, was kept his cool uh, and said something to the effect that I, for one, do not give in to the pressure from the crowd. And that was a, a very clear allusion to November 15th when Sarkozy was at a different rally uh, with a group called Common Sense, who are from the the bigger group called Manif Poltus. These are the anti-same-sex marriage people. And Sarkozy actually said he would rescind the law which legalized same-sex marriage in France. And that caused a huge uproar. It really hurt him. And I think that the, the incident with Juppé also really hurt him. So his, his, his uh, score is going down by, by the day. Now, Larry, if Sarkozy wins on Saturday, as we expect he will, how will he reshape the party itself? <laughs> Well, he says he's going to to 
set the meter back at zero. He wants to start over. It will be sort of year zero of the, of the UMP. He wants to change the name. He had talked about changing its address, but the party is completely bankrupt thanks to Sarkozy's campaign overspending, so they can't move. Um, he, he keeps talking about being, you know, unity, representing unity of the party, but it's sort of l'état c'est moi. I mean, he, he, he sees everything personified in himself. His policies are not terribly clear, actually. He, when he's speaking to a very far-right audience, he sounds like Marine Le Pen, and he says that immigration is a threat to France. And when he's talking to more moderate groups, uh, he, he says, well, we want uh, chosen immigration. We want, to, we want quotas and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, when he's with really far-right people, he talks about uh, abrogating the Schengen Agreement on free movement in Europe. Uh, so he, he really changes his discourse all the time. He's, he's very mercurial. He always has been. And, and that's one thing that frightens a lot of people. That's one reason he was not re-elected in 2012. Now, if the centre-right want to recapture the Elysee in 2017, which is a better strategy for them? Should they go after votes on the right, Marine Le Pen's uh, Front National votes, or should they start heading towards the centre, as Juppé appears to be suggesting? Where, uh, where are the more fertile hunting grounds for votes? Well, they already tried uh, going after the far right in 2012, and it didn't work. Uh, Sarkozy hired an advisor from the far right called Patrick Brisson, uh, and, and he was talking all the time about halal and, and burqas and this sort of thing, you know, this sort of standard scaremongering that's used by the National Front. That didn't work. I, I think that Juppé's strategy of... and partly because it's sincere, but of him embracing the centre-right, uh, uh, of saying, you know, we're, we're with you. I, I think that's a more fertile ground. The, the centre-right, well, Bayrou got nearly 10% of the vote in the last election. Uh, the, the, the real clincher is that Bayrou has implied that he would not stand, he would um, step back in the first round in favor of Juppé, if Juppé is the, is the candidate. Uh, that divides the, the right-wing ticket. And this is, this is why uh, the Sarkozyists are so worried about a primary. They're, they're afraid that if, if Bayrou stands and he gets 10% of the vote, the UMP candidate will not make it to the runoff, uh, which would be, and then you'd have probably François Hollande versus Marine Le Pen, and which could actually mean Marine Le Pen could, could be the next president of France. It's unlikely, but it, it's a distinct possibility. Um, you know, Sarkozy also presents himself as the bulwark against the National Front. He says that he, he he can he can unite all the rights. Actually, that's his his line. Is he can write from the very extreme to the the, the soft center. He thinks he can bring them all together. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think he's a very divisive figure. And so, finally, Larry, if we uh, start to make predictions from this far out, do you think that uh, Nicolas Sarkozy will indeed be the candidate of the center right in 2017? Um, Will no at the moment uh, no I think Alain Juppé is much better placed all of the opinion polls show him to be much more popular than Nicolas Sarkozy uh, Sarkozy's people say this is just a, a, a media phenomenon the media like Juppé the media have always hated Sarkozy uh, that's their explanation of it but if he what he's counting on is the power of the hardcore of the UMP which is more to the right uh, than than the rest 
of, of, the, of the UMP's supporters. And his belief is that if he can get a big enough score on Saturday night, and if he can somehow avoid this primary election, which Juppé would win, if he, can, if he can stay out of that, if he can just be the UMP's candidate, he will defeat François Hollande or Marine Le Pen. That's what he's counting on. Lara Marlowe in Paris, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.